Something that we follow periodically here at Bluff Park with our, with our preaching schedule is something called the lectionary, which is something that you've probably heard me talk about before. It's a three-year, year A, year B, and year C, rotation of biblical texts that give preachers four or five different options to choose from every week. And right now the lectionary is working through both 1 Corinthians and also the Gospel of Matthew. And I was reading the text this week and I realized that I really wanted to preach the Gospel text this morning. It's a part of Jesus's most famous teaching that in the gospel of Matthew is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a teaching that you have definitely heard something from, right? I would imagine that most of us could pick up our Bibles and read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 and recognize at least 50 or 60 percent of what Jesus teaches here in these chapters. It's an all-encompassing teaching from Christ. It begins with the Beatitudes, and then it goes on to really get into the weeds of what Jesus is calling us to do, how he expects us to live live as his followers. The teaching itself is addressed both to Jesus' disciples who are sitting at his feet when he offers this teaching, and also the crowd of people that have begun to follow Jesus and his disciples up to this point in his ministry. The excerpt that we're going to read today and kind of spend some time thinking about is one of my absolute favorite sections from this teaching uh, from Jesus. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be familiar to almost all of you. I think essentially if, if we boil it down, it's Jesus trying to get us to understand who we are and what we are supposed to be doing as his followers. It's from the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 5. It's verses 13 through 16. Let's read it together. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Rather, they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, come on. Most of you, right? I mean, you know that passage, right? Sometimes when you even look at a salt shaker, if you're like me, maybe I'm just a preacher nerd, but sometimes I look at a salt shaker and I think, salt of the world, right? I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Jesus says in this teaching that we are, that we are supposed to be the mineral that lives in the shakers on our kitchen tables. And also that, that we are supposed to be that force that I don't really understand that well, but I know it's real because I can walk up to a light switch and flick it up and a light bulb that was once off is now on and I have light. It's kind of a paradox teaching from Jesus for us today, 2,000 years later, because those are two of the most common things that we have in our life, right? All of our kitchen tables have a salt shaker, I would assume, and all of our homes and all of our workplaces and everywhere that we walk into, whether it is day or night, there is light. It's two things that we've grown to completely take for granted, but, but... 
If your power has ever gone out at an inopportune time, right? Or if you've ever had a bowl of soup or a bite of steak or whatever it was that you thought to yourself, man, this really needs some salt, then you know just how valuable these two things really, really are. I think to understand exactly what Jesus is trying to teach us here, we have to understand the baggage that salt and light carry. Salt, over the course of human history, has been this highly sought-after commodity. And it's had a ton of influence over the shape of the world and trade routes and the economy. Many wars have been fought over access to salt. In Africa, around the Sahara Desert, salt has traditionally been used as currency. In ancient Egypt, when they first started discovering ancient tombs, they found that many of people were buried with salt to take with them on to the next life that they believed they were going on to live. And it was, and it still is, even though we don't use it this way, right, this prized preservative. I think we forgot about the use of salt in this manner because all of our homes have a refrigerator inside of them, right? But 2,000 years ago, if you wanted to preserve a piece of meat, you had to use a thick layer of salt. We have evidence of societies mining salt in 6,000 BCE, which is around 8,000 years ago. We can only assume trying to harvest it so that they could preserve their food. For the folks that Jesus is talking to here, his disciples and the crowd that are sitting at his feet, they would know that oftentimes salt is used in the temple during a sacrifice. It it was called a covenant of salt, where they would take some salt and sprinkle it onto the meat that they were sacrificing to God, hoping to show another layer of their commitment and of their love to God. And then, of course, then and now, salt is used to enhance Flavor. When I think of salt, I think about that pink Himalayan salt that's all the rage right now, right? That people swear is better for you than regular salt. And I think about my wife's chocolate chip cookies that she will sometimes take these fancy salt flakes and sprinkle over the top of them right when they come out of the oven. And I know that some of you in here have had those, and you know what I'm talking about, right? It takes them to another Level. If you ask anyone who knows their way around a kitchen at all, they understand the connection of salt and flavor. Whether it's brining a piece of chicken before you cook it to bring out its natural flavor and its natural juices, or how salt, unlike pepper, can actually brighten and sharpen other flavors in that food that are already present. All of this, right? Wars that have been fought, buried within ancient Egypt, used to sprinkle over food to enhance flavor, all of these things from a tiny grain of salt. And then Jesus tells us that we're not just called to be the salt of the world, we're also called to be the light of the world. He says, a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lantern and then put it under a bushel. Really similar to the salt comparison, right? Jesus is saying that we are to be something relatively small that can and should, when used in the right way, have a pretty massive impact. 
A hillside city, like Jesus says in the teaching, it could guide a traveler along or provide a point of reference in what otherwise would be surrounded by darkness. A lighthouse can provide for the ship a point of land and a marker to set course according to. A lamp of a single flame can be used to light up a whole room after the sun has set. Not to mention the danger and even right the absurdity of lighting a lantern and then putting a bushel on top of it. It is something that just does not make any sense at all. It'd be a waste of fuel to start, right? But then it would also like maybe burn the bushel. That's something I thought of this week that I never thought of before. If you take a lantern and put a bushel over it, it might just make that bushel catch fire. You are the salt and the light of the world. That's who we are. And traditionally, we as Christians, we've, we've kind of known, we've, we've had a pretty good grip on how we should act in response to this teaching from Jesus. Typically, we read this and we interpret these verses to be a commentary on how we should be evangelizing, how we should be spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. That we should be, as followers of Jesus, as valuable as salt to the world. Adding flavor and beauty to the world by the way of love and the grace of God. Oftentimes unseen, right? But always having some sort of influence. That we should be as bold as a light on a hill. For it would be foolish of us to have this light and not use it to push out Darkness. And I think that's pretty much right. I mean, I, mean, I do. I, I think that's what this teaching is meant to tell us. That that's who we are. The salt of the world and the light of the world. And that that's what we are called to do. But the question I've been asking myself this week is not what does Jesus mean by this teaching. I think most of us walked in here and we already knew what Jesus meant by this teaching. What it means to be the salt of the world and what it may look like for us to be the light of the world. The question that I've been asking myself is that if I know what Jesus has to say here, if I sang that song as a little kid, this little light of mine, if it runs through my head whenever I read these verses, if I understand what this scripture is trying to push me to do, then why am I not living it? If I know what Jesus is trying to tell me, why am I not living like I am called to be the salt of the world and the light of of the world. What is it that's stopping me? What is our excuse, right? What is our collective excuse? If we know what this scripture means, if we've all read it before, what is our excuse for not living it out? Because to me, when I read these scripts, when I read this verses and, and, and the teaching that it's encapsulated in, it feels like at this moment for us, the scripture couldn't be any clearer. And yet so often I feel like if you're like me, you find yourself living a life where you are not the salt and you are not the light. This week I stumbled across the story of Bishop Manu Ramsala. Bishop Manu is the bishop in the Church of Pakistan, one of the bishops in the Church of Pakistan. And he was in charge of and in ministry in one of the most dangerous regions in the world called Peshawar. 
It's the region and it's the diocese of the Church of Pakistan that covers the northernmost parts of that country. So it covers the parts of the country that border with Afghanistan. Part of his diocese, when he was a bishop in that area, it actually covered what they call the buffer zone or the the lawless area between those two countries. And that's the area where the border between the countries really fades, where tribalism still rules. It's a place where the war of terrorism and the war on terrorism is just about constantly Raging. It's kind of like no man's land, right? Nobody goes there. Nobody messes with it. Nobody really wants to be a part of it. It's a place where Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, it's a place where they seek refuge and where their rules dominate. And it's a place where they live. You've probably seen this area of Pakistan on the news in the last couple of years because there is almost constantly acts of terror that occur in the communities that find themselves in this region. It is truly one of the, if not the most, hostile environments in the world. It's overcome with poverty. It is severely under-policed. It's home to millions of refugees. It's home to all of these displaced people. And it is simply a home to violence. When I googled Peshawar this week, the first thing that popped up was something telling me not to go there. On top of that, Pakistan, as you know, right, is an Islamic country. The population of Peshawar is about 3 million, and they estimate that of those 3 million, about 20,000 of them are Christians. If I'm being totally honest with you, I could come up with about a hundred reasons, if not more, why I never want to go to this place, much less lead a church there. And yet the Church of Pakistan has held a presence there over the last 150 years. I found an interview with this bishop that he did while he was presiding over this area. And in it, he answers the question that I would ask him if I had the chance to sit down with him, especially while he was working and in ministry in this area. And it's why. Why in the world are you there? What are you doing there? Do you not just feel like you're wasting your time there? Why is it that you keep going back to work? Why is it that you've chosen to live in this region? Why are you there? The interviewer asks him that question, and his answer is this. His answer is, we are here to reenact God's love in Jesus Christ to God's people. That was the answer that he gave, with tears kind of welling up in his eyes, without hesitation either, right? Why are you here? We're here to reenact God's love to God's people. In other words, we are here to be the salt and to be the light of the world. It's who we are. That interview is about 15 minutes long, and I've watched it probably five or six times this week. I've just kept feeling myself pulled back to it, pulled back to him and his story and his ministry, to to the resilience of that church in Pakistan. It has just been so convicting to me this week. And I've been trying to figure out why. Why I just can't get that out of my head. Why I can't get that ministry out of my head this week. Why I just kept feeling myself pulled back to his story and to his voice into his resilience, why it's hit me so hard this week. And, and later this week, I think I realized why. 
Because this ministry and his story and the work that is being done for Christ in this region, in this region of the world, if I let it, if I let it, it forces me to throw out every excuse that I have ever had or that I ever could have for not being the salt and the light of the world. I mean, think about it, guys. What, what excuses do we make when we make a decision where we are not salt or we are not light? What is it that holds us back? What, what is it that stops us from really living out this teaching from Christ? Is it because we think we're surrounded by people who don't deserve it? People who don't deserve that good news or maybe a people that are just that are just too far gone? Is it because it's dangerous or perhaps because being the salt and the light of the world may actually cause us or force us to sacrifice something? Do we feel like our efforts would be pointless, like like nobody would listen, like it wouldn't even be noticed, like like we wouldn't really have any results to show for our sacrifice? Or maybe we just feel like it would be like it would be a waste of time. What is our excuse? What what is it that holds us back? And I don't know about you, but if I let it When I hear that story of that bishop and when I think about that church in Pakistan just trying to reenact God's love for God's people, it forces me to throw out all of the excuses that I could ever make. In that interview, he's talking about the danger of the area, how it's a no-fly zone, meaning no commercial flights are supposed to fly over, and I think really limited military flights as well because of how active the Taliban and other groups are in that, in that area. And with great pride, he calls the Church of Pakistan in that region the overground church. That despite all of the darkness that surrounds them, they are the church that everybody can see. The light that is always lit, that they refuse to put under a bushel. Regardless of their surroundings, in the midst of darkness, they are seeking to simply be the light. I found myself asking myself if I would have that same courage if I found myself in that situation. I don't know, guys. I I saw this teaching in a new way. I, I think I've always read this scripture as something that I already knew. And I think it's tricked me into thinking that not only do I already know it, I'm already living it. I think reading his story and hearing about in this church in Pakistan forced me to reckon a little bit with that, that I think I could really lean more into this in my own life. That I wonder what would happen if I lived every day with that same mission that he stated when asked why, right? That I am here to reenact God's love for God's people. It's reminded me of something that I already knew to be true. It's just convenient to forget that if we really want to be the salt of the world, we're going to have to be willing to go places that lack salt. That if we really, really feel like we are called to be and we want to be the light of the world, that we're going to have to be willing to go places that lack light or places that are dark. My prayer for you is that you, like me, would hear with fresh ears the voice of Christ this week, calling us, calling you to be the salt and the light of the world. That we would have the courage to push whatever excuses we layer in front of that calling aside, whatever they might be. 
so that we could be a people who are willing to step out and actually live as salt and as light. My prayer is that you, like me, would be drawn to that foundational why statement, right, that we, that we see from the mouth of that bishop, right, from the heart of that bishop. That if we want to be salt and light, every decision that we make, every person that we meet, every crossroads that we find ourselves at, it can be answered by the question of why are we here? Well, we are here to reenact God's love for God's people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.